Behold the Lamb of God, Brother Alfred North, Whole England. Alfred. Good morning to everyone. The notes you have before you contain only a small fraction of, of what I want to say in the course of these talks, if God be willing. And what I have to say constitutes only a very small fraction of all that might be said about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. About the work of the Lord Jesus Christ leading up to and culminating upon his cross. The which, if I can borrow a phrase from John's Gospel, the things which the Lord did, if they should be written everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. I have been reminded that when I first came here some decades ago, the topic which was then accepted for the second Idlewild Bible School from me was Meditations on the Cross. Two things have happened since then. One is that the decades have rolled by and our memories are not perfect. And the second is that I've done a good deal more meditating. And so what has to be offered now will certainly have a lot in common with what I said at that time, for those of you who remember. But I hope will involve some measure of growth in an understanding of this tremendous topic. I want to draw two things from things I've already said during this week. One to a young people's class, and the other to last Sunday morning's Bible class here. And I hope I may be forgiven for the repetition. To the young people's class, I recorded the opening words of a confession of faith by two different people when they were asked why they wanted to be baptized. The first was, well, that's the way to eternal life, and that's where I want to go. No three guesses. That, to my shame, was me. And the other was from a young person who had not been brought up in a Christadelphian background, who made known to the sister who had instructed her that she wanted to be baptized. And when she was asked, and why do you want to be baptized, she answered, when I think of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging in agony upon his cross, and I know that was done for me, something has to be done about that. How I could wish in God's grace that I had thought of that when they asked me why I wanted to be baptized. But I've thought about it since. Out of the mouth of that particular babe and suckling, great wisdom came for the instruction of us all. A further general comment. I don't know whether if you look down your ecclesial programs of Sunday public addresses, you'd find the cross of Christ figuring largely I hope so, but I don't expect so. I don't know whether if you divided up the things that are discussed, you would find that a lot of attention is given to the second coming of the Lord, as it should be. That a good deal of attention is given as to when he will come back, which has, over the years, had its embarrassments. There is a good deal of time devoted to seeking to divine who it is who will come down to take a spoil, to take a prey in the land of unwalled villages with fluctuating conclusions concerning which we are currently very much in the melting pot. And that very, very little is said about the cross of Christ. Some few years ago, I had to go to Norway 
on behalf of the Bible Mission to begin the recent Christadelphian preaching in that country. And while I was there, I bought a Norwegian Bible. I bought a cheap one. And I hadn't noticed how it was bound. But when I got back, some brother called attention to the image that was emblazoned on the front. And he said, ah, got the sign of the beast on it, I see. It was a cross. And some young member of a Christadelphian household came to me, and he too saw that inscription on the front of my Bible. He said, oh, we don't believe in the cross, do we, uncle? Well, we do, don't we? And I would like this morning to spend a good deal of attention in showing how very important it is to believe in it. I seem to remember that Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by which the world hath been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I seem to remember that on one occasion he walked amidst a sophisticated town where many of them there would have known much more about Greek philosophy than any of us know, and perhaps even than Paul, the learned Paul would have known. But he wasn't prepared to compete. Who knew more or most about the things in the world around them? Paul did not care, and he said, I determined to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That same Apostle Paul wrote about himself, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. And yet no longer I, but Christ liveth in me. And that same Apostle Paul wrote to you and me, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts thereof. So whatever part the cross plays in our preaching, in our exhortation, in our study and in our meditation, it plays a very large part, a central part, indeed if I may coin its own phrase, a crucial part in the thinking of the believers of those days. The cross was a crossroads where human thought came to a stop and contemplated the wisdom of God and thought about itself, and pride retired discomfited, and humility mounted the place side by side with where the Lord hung in agony, and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. There is no such topic as this, to keep us humble if that is where we are, to make us humble if we are not there, to restore us to humility if we have strayed away and make us glory in nothing save what God has done for us and in nothing that we think we have done for ourselves. And now to take up what was the topic of a talk last Sunday, but briefly, I want you to picture before your minds the River Jordan with John the Baptist standing there having performed his mission of baptism upon publicans, extortionate tax collectors, that is, harlots, we call them prostitutes today, and sinners of all kinds who were willing but to fulfill this simple condition that they would go to John and confess their sins. 
before they could be baptized by him in Jordan. When John stood there with two of his disciples, those two must have been two of those many who had accepted his baptism. And we don't at that stage know anything against them. If we learn things later which make us realize how human John the brother of James was, and if, as we suspect, Andrew was no better than human, then those two were men who would see that, gentle though their sins might have been, good though their public reputation might have been, they, like the publicans and the harlots, were sinners and should be baptized with the baptism of John. So they had been. And so had someone else. Some days before, some weeks before I think it would have been, probably not less but not much more than six weeks before, John had conducted another baptism. And while the publicans and the harlots were flocking to him, and the Pharisees were standing aloof with superior gaze and contemptuous glance, there came to John, to Jordan, Jesus of Nazareth, to be baptized by him. If we are to take as meaning exactly what it says, the words of John chapter 1, then when John later, six weeks later, says, I knew him not, we must suppose that he did not at once recognize the person who came to be baptized. He might not have done. They might never have met up to now. Elizabeth, John's mother, had been in the hill country in the wilderness, and she had but met Mary, the mother of the Lord, at that time, and perhaps during the whole period since John was in the desert until the day of his showing unto Israel. But now they met for the first time, perhaps. When Jesus came to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Would you look with me at the circumstances in Matthew chapter 3? The earlier verses up to verse 13 have been devoted to describing John's general mission, preparing the way of the Lord and the people who came to him and the sinners who repented and the people who would not repent to whom John warned that this might be their last opportunity for behold the axe was laid at the root of the tree and if the people did not repent then the tree they represented would be cut down. And into that partly penitent, partly hostile community came the Lord Jesus Christ and we read verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to the Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John would have hindered him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. How did he know that he had need to be baptized by this one of whom he later confesses, I knew him not? But he that said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending like a dove, it is he that shall baptize with the Holy Spirit. How did John, who had not yet had that experience, know that the relationship between Jesus and himself was such that baptism would be better the other way round? That his character compared with the Lord's character would make him the suppliant, the penitent, the confessor of sins, and Jesus Christ the receiver, the baptizer, the conveyor of grace. I don't know. It could just be that the very demeanor of Jesus marked him out 
from the shamefaced blushes of the Pharisee, of the publicans and the harlots. It could just be that John knew something that we don't know in a way we don't know about. For it is not quite true that he and Jesus had not met before. They had met 30 years before. Before either of them was born. And Elizabeth having but lately been given the power to bear a child by that quickening of her womb and of the powers of Zacharias which God had given her encountered Mary the mother of the Lord Jesus but lately the subject of the Holy Spirit's action. And when they came together Elizabeth said Whence is it that the mother of my Lord is come unto me? For when the child that is in me saw thy coming it leapt in my womb for joy. So in some way quite unknown to us, even the unborn John responded to the presence of the majesty of the Son of God. And if the unborn John could do that, then John the baptizer at the age of 30 plus, with no prejudices to warn him against the Lord Jesus coming, might within himself somehow have perceived that this was one greater than he, as he had said, the latchet of whose shoes he was not worthy to unloose. And so, I have need to be baptized of thee, said John. It would have been so tempting to accept the words of John at their face value and agree and retire and decide not to be baptized. It would have come so naturally to me had I been there and had John, which he could not have done, said such a thing to me, to say, yes, he's right, isn't he? All those being baptized are sinners in one way or another. Gross sinners, coarse sinners, rapacious sinners, but sinners, every one of them. And as for me, I have done, done no sin. I shouldn't need to be baptized, should I? John's humble abdication might well have appealed to any pride that could have influenced the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and turned him away from baptism. Not the Lord we know. That was not his way. It's quite evident there was a struggle of wills between John who said, I shouldn't baptize you, and withstood him, which seems to be a very powerful withstanding. And the Lord's statement, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, from which he would not move in his subservience to his God and his Father. So John gave way. And the Lord was baptized. And he went down into the water, and as he came out of the water, so this record in Matthew, which I have been paraphrasing, tells us, the Spirit of heaven, God, descended from heaven in the shape of a dove, and a voice was heard saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There will be more to say about that, and similar divine declarations later, but for all we know about the omnipotence of God and his knowing things from the beginning and the fact that he would have been aware of what Jesus Christ was going to do. If I as a son in relation to my own now deceased father can remember rightly and I as a father in relation to my own now grown sons can assess the way I felt I think there was in him for all his concealment there was in me, whatever I may have reacted, a glow of pleasure when my son said to me or I said to him,
we would like to be baptized. And God's foreknowledge is not a hinder to, to his feelings. His awareness of what will happen does not make him simply mechanically turn over the leaf of a diary when something happens. He too feels what is going on. And I have no doubt that when the Lord Jesus Christ had humbly accepted his baptism and came up to complete that and was received by the greeting of the Spirit of God from heaven in the shape of a dove, then the voice that said from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, was saying in my vernacular, Well done, my son. I am very pleased with you for what you've done. In the sort of way my father would have said to me, and with the same joy. And John looked on. He had done the thing he would not wish to do. He had accepted the grace he shrank from. He had touched the body of the Son of God and baptized him. And now God had said what a great thing that condescension was. And John knew him now. And the Lord was taken away. Driven, says Mark, by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Enduring, therefore, the forty days I have referred to, the temptations which must arise later in this series of talks today, and emerging triumphant, not having sinned. You know, there are some words that ring untrue. I said triumphant, although it wasn't the right word to say, just to awaken you and me to the way in which Jesus did emerge from everything. He never triumphed. He never adopted a triumphant attitude. What he did was obey and work and love and labor and serve and suffer and die and all to the glory of his Father. And the manner in which he endured the temptations in the wilderness was of the same kind. Man doth not live by bread alone. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him alone shalt thou serve. He came from a victorious encounter with those temptations, with his hum humble obedience to God intact, unchallenged by the pride or lust or desire or ambition of man. And he came back to Jordan. And John saw him from afar. And as John chapter 1 tells us, he said to his two disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world. The title of this first talk. And then again, a little later, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, John, the brother of James, and Andrew, we believe them to have been, went and followed Jesus, and said, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? And were taken to his temporary home, by him who had no home, worse off than the birds of the air and the foxes in their holes and had their first application of his teaching. But John spoke. Andrew and John, the brother of Zebedee, the brother of James, heard. And who else heard? Jesus was sharp of hearing. He could tell what people were saying when they were walking a good way behind them and conversing secretly amongst themselves, hoping the Lord wouldn't know. He could, when they came to him, say, what was that you were disputing with you, by the way? I'm sure he could have told them the answer. He was aware what was in the hearts of men before they spoke. The Lord 
knew what was in men. And if John the Baptist's voice had not been audible as a voice, I have no doubt the Lord would have apprehended what he said. Because he was the Lord with such powers belonging to him. So suppose now you had been walking by and John had pointed at you and he had said you had heard him, Behold the Lamb of God. What thoughts would have gone through your mind? Suppose he had said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. What additional thoughts would have pierced your mind? Wounded your thinking? Given voice to the anxiety you were already feeling and made you look at the future? And see at least as clearly as you had ever seen? what it was that was in store for you. Behold the Lamb of God, said John. When they were going to sacrifice a lamb in Old Testament times, and especially under the injunction that they must not sacrifice a lamb with blemish, that they must pick out from their flocks one that seemed to them to be flawless in all its characteristics. You can picture the shepherd going to his flock and looking them over and walking amongst them and finally laying his hand on the head of one and saying that that's the one I'll take and the Lord Jesus Christ walked among the multitudes and John revealed in the simple words he used that the Almighty had said that one that's the Lamb of God and he knew it was himself to which reference was being made. I don't think it was the first time that that thought came into Jesus' mind. I don't know, because we are not told as far as I'm aware, when the, first, the Lord first apprehended his messianic mission. Very early, I think it would have been. That there was at least something of it there, when at the age of 12 he disputed with the scribes in the temple in Jerusalem. And his answer to his mother, did you not know that I must be about my father's business, would already reveal that he knew who his father was and that it was his father's work he was come to do. And whether at that age he saw the cross ahead of him, I do not know. But I think he knew it before John told him. It was already in his mind before it was made public by those very painful public words. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. For there's no mistaking the import of the words, lambs to take away sin were sacrificed. A lamb as an offering was put to death. John was saying, that man is going to die for the sins of the world. I don't even know how much John himself understood. The words were plain enough and it's hard to understand any other meaning for them. And perhaps there is some other explanation of why John in prison, in great unhappiness, with no expectation of being delivered from the headsman's axe, sent messages to the Lord saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Well, at least at that time, I think even later perhaps, John understood, or made us to understand, that the purpose of God had Jesus dying for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He knew the scriptures well, this Jesus did. 
he could stand up in the synagogue at Nazareth. And when they gave him the scrolls containing a part of the Old Testament to read, he could find the 61st chapter of Isaiah. He could read the words, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel, to proclaim deliverance, to proclaim the opening of prisons. And then, having given the roll back and sat down, he could say, That means me. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And if he knew that about the preaching of the gospel of peace, it is not possible to believe that he did not also know the route he must tread to bring that peace. As Paul would later write, he is our peace. We have made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition that was between us. He has made peace by the blood of his cross. Paul would write, and I'm sure that Jesus saw that when he stood up to read in the synagogue at Nazareth, when he sat down to preach. And maybe saw it yet more painfully when having preached to them about the abounding grace of God to Gentiles as well as Jews, they were angry with him. And they took him out of their synagogue and they took him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built and they would have cast him headlong. They were not able to do more than that. Not then. For Jesus passed out of the midst of them and went his way. But there is one recurrent phrase in John's Gospel in particular, sometimes from the lips of the Lord, sometimes from the pen of the writer. His hour was not yet come. What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. The hour cometh, the hour is come. This is your hour and the power of darkness. And through all those mentions of time yet to come, close by, at hand, and now happening, Jesus saw the passage of the time that would lead him to his death upon the cross. There are many other indications of that. If we look carefully through the words of Jesus from both early days till later days, we see how evidently he was aware of what was in store for him. Why do not your disciples fast? said the Pharisees and the disciples of John to him. And the Lord said in reply, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? The hour is coming when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then shall they fast in those days? And what else could he have meant? Then that the course of their engagement would not run smooth, he and his bride. That there might be an expectation of an early union in the glories of the kingdom, but it was not to be that way. All their hopes and their joys concentrated in the association of the Lord with his spiritual bride were to be postponed, as they would see it, until the bridegroom returned from a long and painful journey. The hour is coming when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. It's a quite instructive exercise to go through all the passages in the Gospels where the symbols of a marriage are there. Like the great feast to which guests are invited and won't come, and so those from the highways and the byways are brought in instead. Like the ten virgins, five of whom are wise and five are foolish. 
like the Lord Jesus Christ as the bridegroom and John the Baptist as the best man. It's a strange business. You have the father of the bridegroom, you have the bridegroom, you have the marriage hall, you have the feast prepared, you have the guests. And you never see the bride. Not in the Gospels. You have to keep on waiting while the earmarked bridegroom is lost to sight in the darkness of his grave. And then emerges to new glory and then we begin to learn slowly and painfully but quite inexorably that at last there can be a bride. And wise for whom in symbol the Lord died for the church and gave himself up for it that he might purify to himself a holy church without spot or blemish zealous of good works are privileged at last in Ephesians to be brought before the daylight and we are be being told that that is the first explicit statement that the bride has been found and then of course the events march on to the expected glory when John is told come hither and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And the bride, the Lamb's wife, arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, stands by the side of her gloriously attired, resplendent Lord, basking in the glory of his Father. And only the eye of remembrance knows that in the hands that hang down, there are the marks of nails. In the feet so splendidly shod, there are two more marks of two more nails. And if it lies in the purpose of God to let the scar be a symbol of his victory, there is somewhere a place still to be seen where the spear pierced his side. And all that the Lord Jesus saw when he said, Come the children of the bride chamber fast when the bridegroom is with them. And under the shadow of that pending cross the Lord walked his life. Not just there alone, Every time he escaped from death, and there were several of them, every time they raised up stones to stone him, and either God stayed their hands so that they couldn't release the stone, or the Lord disappeared from their sight, and I don't know which it was. The Lord saw the threat of death, perceived how tenuously his life hung upon the stayed anger of his enemies, and when he went out of the midst of them and walked on the other side of Jordan, or did all the other things that the Lord did to evade the imminent death we see not just that for that moment he escaped but that his hour had not yet come he was not shirking death he was deferring the time of death till the time that God had appointed and then he would resignedly die he goes throughout his preaching they will tell him he is Christ the son of the living God and what does the Lord say in reply the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and be put to death. And the third day rise again. From that day on began Jesus to tell his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and the same repetition we have once more. You want the chief places, James and John, do you, in my kingdom? Are you able to be baptized with my baptism? To drink of my cup? To endure my sufferings? You say you are, then you shall. 
But the best pleasures in my kingdom is not mine to give. That my Father will give to those for whom it is appointed. In the meanwhile, prepare yourselves for sufferings like mine. And the Lord stared his sufferings plainly in the face and knew they were to come. And said to the disciples in return when they were angry with James and John, He that would be greatest among you, let him be your minister. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Somewhere in the personal diary of the Lord Jesus Christ, in that non-leather-bound and ring-united and carefully organized set of loose-leaf sheets we call an organizer in these days, Somewhere in the immaterial diary that reminded the Lord of his appointments. There was a note against a certain day in Nisan, A.D., whenever it was, saying, go and be crucified. It was not an appointment he couldn't have broken. It was an appointment he didn't choose to break. And every day of his waking life, he was moving his steps nearer to the time, but not before the time, the time, but not later than the time, no anticipation and no postponement, when he would come to the point where he must say, this is your hour, and the power of darkness. How grieved he must have been when his efforts to make that plain to his disciples founded upon their human incredulity and their desire for glory without the shame when he said with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer this is my body which is given for sin this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins how heightened his sorrow must have been when leaving eight disciples sleeping in the rear, he took three with him who slept in their turn close by his place of agony. And he prayed without their noticing it. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yet he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. And at last, they tried him, and they condemned him, and they passed the verdict of death upon him. And the cross loomed before him, humanly inescapable now. He was their prisoner. But he was their prisoner from choice. They could never have taken him when he struck them to the ground in the garden, and could have walked over their prostrate bodies to freedom. Had he not been willing to rise again and say, take me. And even then they could take but him. So great was the Lord's power. That though he granted them the right to take him and his life. He said, but don't touch the others. Let them go. And that rabble armed with swords and stays stood to attention and obedience as eleven disciples filed out of that company utterly unharmed as the power of the Lord rescued them. But himself he would not rescue. They could get up now and take him away. 
but he would not say them nay. Before high priest and before Pilate, he would speak the words that condemned him. There's all around mockers and rulers and impenitent thief said, come down from the cross if you're Christ. And as I think he knew that power within him, he stayed where he was and willingly died for our sins and gave up the spirit according to the scriptures. What John said to them, we must now say to each other and try to apprehend its poignancy and its pain and its love and hear the words, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But to end on a note of our triumph, it was the Lamb of God as it had been slain that came out of the multitudes of people who could not help, of angels and authorities and powers and governors and living and dead, and presented himself to the Father before the majesty of heaven, and took from the Father's willing hand the book that disclosed and contained the future, and sat down and opened it, and said to you and me, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit down with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne.